Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> Elijah, you have the glory of Petrie memorized because it's not up here. Is it in the... Okay. I know it's easy to memorize, but there's several versions of it, people. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, no one, no one accused me of anything. Sorry for being so defensive. Okay. We are going to start on unconditional election, and I'm going to read. There's, <clears throat> I mean, there, this is all over the scriptures. Um, I'm kind of looking for big chunks, though, to, to cover, um, and there's <clears throat> a couple of really good spots to do that. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, and then Romans 9, 6 through 24, which I will cover both of those briefly. Uh, but I want to read out of Ephesians uh, 1, 3 through 14, because... Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 kind of has the, the feel of presenting unconditional election in a beautiful and glorious manner. Um, and that's what the purpose of uh, these um, sermons is. It's what I want to do. I don't necessarily want to prove or defend the doctrines of grace, tulip, Calvinism, however you want to, well, whatever you want to call it. Although there will be pictures of that and there, I will be doing that throughout, the main emphasis is to just present the beauty of the doctrines of grace to the people of God and for us to say yes and amen, okay? And so Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 14 does that really, really well. Uh, then we get to Romans 9 and Paul does, he unpacks it and he does some explaining, but Ephesians 1 is just, it's just a proclamation of the glorious grace of God uh, for sinners. So uh, beginning in verse 3, the word of the Lord, blessed is the God and Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him, we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will, so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, just your grace before the foundations of the world, Lord. You loved us, um, and we are so grateful for that, Lord. We will spend the rest of our lives and all eternity praising you for, for that, for the fact that we get to be with you, we get to be your kids. It's, it's, we're forgiven, we, we have your righteousness, all because of your unconditional love and mercy and election towards your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, 
Um, how do I want to do this? Um, notice, okay, as you walk through Ephesians 1, and I'm not going to walk through it, actually. Uh, but just, just notice that when Paul lays out the fact that we are chosen before the foundations of the world, there's no reason for us to, um, you know, presuppositions are good unless they're uh, presuppositions. We all come to the scriptures with presuppositions, all right? We, we, meaning we come with already things that we think are true, right? Which is why we actually started this with the doctrine of God and God's sovereignty, because we want to get that right first, because that'll help our presuppositions in the future when we start to see what God actually does, his, his, his works, um, presuppositions are good when they're right, obviously. Presuppositions are fine when they're wrong, and we admit that they're wrong, when, and we allow the Word of God to correct us. Presuppositions are not good when the clear teaching of Scripture is, is just right before us, and we start moving words around, and we make, we make the subject not the subject. We, we, make, we, we make words that a fourth grader could understand complicated because it, it rubs us the wrong it rubs us the wrong way because as humans our default position we have some default positions you know which is why we constantly harp on the grace of God and that it's not by the works of man because our default position even intellectually knowing that it's not by any works of man we we our default our switch gets constantly turned on to to start viewing salvation in the light of what we have done or what we're currently doing okay and we do the same thing when it comes to topics like predestination and the sovereignty of God. It just kind of, our default is kind of like it just kind of rubs us the wrong way. And so we read a verse like, that is, again, very clear. Uh, he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. And we, we start moving words around. And then we're saying stuff like, well, he chose us because he looked down the corridors of time and saw that I would choose him. And because of that, he chose me. Well, that just simply means you chose him, and because you chose him, he chose you, which really, you're putting the cart before the horse, right? But that's clearly not what this verse says. It says that we are chosen before the foundations of the world, but it's not, and then I'm not going to go over it again, but notice the unpacking of that, and then he talks more about predestination. It's, it's not you're chosen, and then you're good. No, it's all connected to Christ. In Christ, in him, in Christ. In, you, you have the fact that we believe in Christ. You have the fact that Christ came and Christ lived for us and Christ died for us. All those things are in the doctrine of election. They're not separate from it. And that's why I love Ephesians, because God is not only in the decrees of God, does he not only decree first causes, he decrees second causes. And all the means that the people of God actually come to God are also decreed by God. So it's, there's not just this decree that goes out from God that's like, here's who I'm saving, and so they're saved. No, here's who I'm saving. Here's who my son is being sent for. Here's who he's going to live for. Here's who he's going to die for. Here's who the Holy Spirit is going to make alive. And here's who is going to believe in my son whom I sent on their behalf. That's Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 for us, all right? And, and it just shows us the beauty of it. It follows from the fact, okay, that if man is totally depraved, radically depraved, which we, we, we got that set, all right, it follows and flows from that that God would not look down the corridors of time and see anyone choosing him out of their own free will. It, it, 
There's no way. Man is totally depraved. He doesn't understand the things of the Spirit. He can't believe. The very things he's called to do, he can't do. So if, if that is true, then if God did look down the corridors of time to see who would choose him, what would he discover? Nobody choosing him. He would discover what the Word of God clearly declares, that there is no one righteous, no, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All right. God, and here's another thing. When we do this corridors of time thing, I've even heard this said. If you were going to the horse track and you knew who was going to win, would you pick losers? No. God picks winners. And I just want to be like, oh, kidding me. God picks winners. Where is that in the scriptures? God doesn't pick winners. He chooses. There is no winners. He doesn't choose winners because there's no winners to choose from. He chooses sinners. He chooses enemies. He chooses the foolish things of the world. And in doing so, he gets all the glory. And in doing so, we get all the benefit. We become righteous. We become his friends. We become his sons and daughters. I mean, the doctrine of election is the bedrock and the foundation of the doctrines of grace. In a real sense, I mean, I know there's five points, but the grace starts here in unconditional election. What is unconditional election? It is exactly what it sounds like, that God chooses to show his mercy and his grace and his love on some who deserved wrath, who deserve condemnation, and he does so without, them, without any conditions that they have to meet. He doesn't look down the corridors of time. It's all unconditional. So why, though, does he choose some? Because. Because he loves us. Why does he loves us? love us? Because he loves us. That's where... That's then where you gotta gotta be careful with the doctrine of unconditional election is trying to, you know, I think you're gonna have all the answers. What is clear from the scriptures is that God chooses, He chooses before the foundations of the world, those who He's gonna whom He's gonna save, then they're saved in real time, which we'll get into that in the following weeks. And He does so not based on any right or wrong that they have done. He doesn't do it based on their intelligence. He doesn't do it based on their uh, status in society. He doesn't do it on, on anything inherently good about them because there is nothing inherently good about us. And this is, man, talk about the glorious grace of God, that he would choose us before the foundations of the world. Here's some cool little quotes, okay? One of this is from Augustine. God chooses us not because we believe, but that we would believe. Oh, that's, that's absolutely Luther says, the love of God does not find, but creates what is pleasing to it. The love of God does not find. God looks down the corridors of time. If he looked, which he doesn't look, God doesn't look. God knows everything. He doesn't have to look. God never learned anything about anything. But if he did, we already know what he would see. And so he creates it. And even right here, it says in verse 3, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world because we were holy and blameless. No, to be holy and blameless. And then Spurgeon with a little, Spurgeon was a little whippersnapper. Listen to what he says. I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure that he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. So I am forced to accept that great biblical doctrine. 
And that's the thing, whether we're talking about the doctrine of God, whether we're talking about the doctrine of salvation, every single doctrine, even if it at first rubs us the wrong way, that is true about God and true about his acts is glorious and it is great. And this is, this is again, this is everything flows from the fact that we have been chosen before the foundations of the world. God's grace starts not even in time. God's grace doesn't start for you when you're born. God's grace, there's a saying that God will never stop loving, loving you because God never began to love you. Did you hear that? God's love will never stop. He will never stop loving you because he never started loving you. Because began to love, start to love, those are time words. And God has loved you with an everlasting love is what the scriptures say. Before time. And he just doesn't love. He actually, his love is action. In his love, he's chosen us. So we don't have to fear. This is the beauty and the gloriousness of this doctrine. We don't have to fear that God's going to stop loving us again because he never started loving us. He has always loved us. It's incredible to think about. Now, I don't know if I should do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Go to Romans 9, all right? Because I don't have time to do all this stuff, actually. Ephesians just shows us, I mean, just read it and read it and read it. I mean, like, you know, I'll say, like, the most important thing you can do is proclaim uh, outside of gathering together to hear the gospel proclaimed to you is to proclaim the gospel to yourself. And people will be like, where can I go for that? Ephesians 1 is a good place. I highly recommend Ephesians 1. Because the point isn't just simply that God chose us before the foundation of the world. If you read Ephesians 1, the whole point is the glorious, glorious, glorious grace of God for his people. And what a great way to start, start any day off. Okay, Romans 9, beginning in verse 6. Now, again, I'm not gonna, I don't have time to teach this, but, but I am going to read it, and I might make some comments, okay? This is talking about election as well. And it's almost like it's more of a, a defense of election. And so let's just let the words speak for themselves, okay? We don't have to undo this. There's our, there are ways to teach the Bible that are not the ways to teach the Bible. And people do this with Ephesians 1, and they do it with Romans 9. My plea is just let's not do that. Let's just receive the word, okay, at face value. Let's, beginning in verse 6. Now, it is not as though the word of God has failed, and he's making this argument because not of all Israel is, is being saved. And he says, because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. He's, now, he's going to do this whole Jew-Gentile thing, all right? Neither are all of Abraham's children his descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac, Isaac being the promise. That is, not the children of physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. For this is his statement of the promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah will have a son, Isaac, all right? She had a son, Ishmael, but he didn't choose Ishmael. He chose Isaac, and it's all because of the promise, the promise of Christ coming through Abraham. And not only that, but Rebekah conceived children through one man, the father Isaac. For though her sons had not been born yet done anything good or bad, there you go unconditional election. They had not done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to election might stand not from works but from the one who calls. From works would be God looking down and seeing your works and then choosing you based off your works 
which we know if even that were to be true, it still would not be true because he would not see any good works to choose you from. It's, it's fascinating. She told, I, the older, the younger I will serve, as it is written, I loved Jacob and I hated Esau before they were even born, before the foundations of the world. He chose um, Isaac over Ishmael and he chooses Jacob over Esau. He says, I loved Jacob and I hated Esau before they ever even did anything. And, and Paul knows what this does to us. And I will say here, everybody has a doctrine of election because predestination and election, these are Bible words. If your understanding of election and predestination doesn't make especially the unbeliever recoil, then it's, it can't be, it can't, it can't be the true biblical doctrine of predestination or election. It can't be. If your doctrine of election is like, oh, yeah, that makes sense, sweet, it's probably not the right one. And here Paul knows how we would respond to this fact that, that God chooses before the foundations of the world, and, and, and therefore that must be, and he doesn't choose some, and he doesn't not just choose some, he hates some and he loves some, and we're like, ooh, what does Paul say? What should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not, he says. Now, we already know there isn't injustice with God from last week's picture. Getting, I mean, again, there's a bunch of overlap here where everybody deserves to go to hell because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. It's justice for God to send everybody to hell. It's mercy and grace and love for him to choose some out of those people. But there is no injustice anywhere. There's justice, and then there's mercy. And if, if, we're, if, if we're actually talking about what's fair and what's right, then God would choose nobody. It would be fair and right that everybody just goes to hell. That would be what would be fair. That would be, that would be okay, because God is not, no, we're not forcing God's hand. That would not be mercy. That would not be grace. That would not be love. That would be works. That would be now we're God. We're playing the role of God. God is not required to save anybody. And I, again, I love Spurgeon. He says, everyone's like, man, he hated Esau. And he's like, no, 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 no. He loved Jacob? Of course he hated Esau. But the fact that he loved Jacob is what is the amazing truth. So Romans 9, he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Okay, when I first started getting it, the first step for me understanding and getting the doctrines of grace was to come to these simple terms, which is basically what he's already starting to do. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy to, and I will have compassion on whom I will have. He's already putting us in our place. This is the, uh, what they would call the, the uh, creator-creature distinction. I will. You don't call the shots. You don't decide who I show mercy on. You don't decide who I show compassion on. This, this is, is God gets to do whatever he wants to do because he's God. And once you can like start that to be like your foundation on understanding who God is and, and then what he does, then when you even are like, I don't, and I, there's mystery, and I don't understand it, and you know what, I don't even think I would do it that way. You're still like, well, it's God, and he gets to do whatever he wants to do, and I guarantee you his ways are way better than my ways. I guarantee you his ways are way better than yours. I guarantee you when it's all said and done, there's going to be some 
sort of amazing picture, which Paul's going to get into, of just glory and grace that would not have been to the degree that it is if God hadn't done it this way. And then that's kind of what he unpacks. So then it does not depend on human will or effort. We'll get into this again, not today, but later. But on God who shows mercy. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason so that I may display my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whoever he wants to harden. Again, this should kind of make us recoil. I mean, he, there's no reason to undo this and be like, well, you know, uh, uh, Pharaoh hardened his own heart first, then God hardened, and then do this. Well, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And Paul says he raised him up to, so that God's power and mercy would be declared. And then he says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? Again, this is a good question. Nobody can resist his will. Why does God find fault? Here's the answer. Who are you, a mere man, to talk back to God? There it is. I mean, there it is. He doesn't really tell us the answer. He just basically says, "How? I mean, I I knew you were going to ask this question, but how dare you? I mean, who the heck are you to, to, to question God and who he finds fault? He finds fault. If he wants to find fault, he finds fault in everybody. But, but he doesn't, he, he, he then sends his son so that those that are in his son are declared righteous, declared faultless. Why did you, he goes, who would say to the one who formed it, why do you make me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? Of course he does. And what if God, now he goes outside of Pharaoh to I don't even know how many people, but a lot. And he says the same thing about multitudes of people that he just declared about Pharaoh. What if God wanting to display his wrath and to make his power known endured with much patience objects, plural, the objects are people, people of wrath prepared for destruction. That's incredible. But here's the thing. If, if no one is seeking God, if everyone deserves to go to hell and have God's wrath, why, if that's okay, which we all agree that it is because we're sinners, then why would it be wrong for God to plan that? It wouldn't be at all. God's in charge. He's, he's in charge of everything. And what if he did it? Why? Well, what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy? that he prepared beforehand for glory on us. And then, so you see, not only are we seeing in election and seeing who he chooses and who he doesn't choose, we're seeing judgment. God's God's glory and his justice on one end and God's glory and his mercy and his love and his grace on the other end. And actually, if you get rid of this one, there is none. This one doesn't even exist. If there's no wrath, if there's no evil, if there's no sin, then there would be no forgiveness, there would be no righteousness, there would be no mercy, there would be no grace, there would be no love, there would be no reason for it. And the reason we glory so much in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the grace of God is because of the backdrop of all the darkness and the wrath and the sin and the evil. Now take that away. Say, say that that's just totally gone. We're, we're not, we're not, what are we doing? 
We're not doing what we do every Sunday together. And so you have in Ephesians 1 a, just a declaration of it. And in Romans 9, you basically have Paul given a defense of it. And the defense is basically like God gets to do whatever he wants to do. Trust him. The way he's doing it is actually going to give insane amounts of glory to his justice and insane amounts of glory to his mercy and his grace and his love. It's God's master plan. He is the master builder. Well, does the scriptures, do they declare anywhere else this? And it does, and now that's what we're going to go through. Listen to Jeremiah's testimony in Jeremiah 1, 4 through 5. The word of the Lord came to me. I chose you before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. I appointed you a prophet to the nations before he was even born. That's Jeremiah's testimony. Paul's testimony is similar. For you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, who from my mother's womb set me apart and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles, I didn't immediately consult with anyone. Before he was even born, he was set apart. Oh, that's cool. Jeremiah, prophet, Paul, apostle. What about us? Well, I think this applies to us. This would be our testimony. In Acts 13, 47 through 48, when the Gentiles hear the gospel, this is what they do. They rejoiced and honored the word of the Lord and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. See? See? how it's not the cart before the horse. They were appointed to eternal life before the foundations of the world. And because so, then they, through God's secondary means of sending his son and through birthing them again and giving them faith and repentance through all that stuff, then they, then they believed in light of all of that. But it all hinges on the fact that they were appointed to eternal life. Romans 8, 28 through 30, classic, we know it. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called, there you go, there's an election word, according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, foreknew does not mean, I mean, it doesn't not mean that he doesn't know what we're going to do because he knows everything, but foreknew means foreloved, ultimately. That would be a better way of of, of understanding that word. Those he foreloved, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, here we go, in real time, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, then he also glorified. So you see that this is our testimony. It's not divorced from Jeremiah's or Paul's. It's the people of God's testimony that it's all about foreknowing and foreloving and predestination and unconditional election. It's all about God's decree going out before the very foundations of the world. When God's decree goes out, it goes out with every single thing planned. Everything. He understands that he knows the hairs on your head. He knows a sparrow that falls from the sky. He knows every single thing because he decrees everything. He doesn't decree because he knows. He knows because he decrees. Second Timothy, he has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, 
but according to his purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Unconditional election. Before time began, and I love this, he called us to a holy calling. It's not according to our works. So this gets, again, this gets rid of the corridors of time thing. This gets rid of, like, I got to do something, and then God will then bless me because I do it. It, it just gets rid of that. It's all given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. First Thessalonians, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't appoint us to wrath. Who? Us, the elect, the people of God. Praise the Lord for that. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen... Living as exiles dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. You got the grace and peace because you have been chosen and you have been chosen based on God's foreknowledge, foreloving, before the foundations of the world, now more grace and peace be given to you in this life. Revelation 13, 5 through 8, the beast was given a mouth to utter boasts and blasphemies. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It began to speak blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name and his dwelling those who dwell in heaven. And it was permitted to wage war against the saints and to conquer them. It was also given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All those who live on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the lamb who was slaughtered. We are at God's disposal. And from one point of view, that could look like, ooh, from another point of view, it's like, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Because we know we're, we're building off sovereignty of God and depravity of man. And we, we, we don't want to be in charge of this. We want to be at God's disposal. There's no hope. We have no hope without that. Because, I mean, think about how you pray for your kids, your mom who's not saved, or your dad, or your co-worker. And let's just put it in perspective. Let's get a mom or a dad praying for their little two-year-old, all right, who clearly knows the depravity of man at this point, all right? Clearly they know, all right? That man is radically and totally depraved. If you've got a little child, you know it, all right? This is how they don't pray. Dear Lord, I know you're a gentleman. So leave them alone. I pray they come to believe in you by their own strength and power. Don't do anything to coax them. Don't, don't, don't do anything. That's not how we pray. We give our kids to the Lord. We say, Lord, save them. Because I'm, I, there's nothing, what am I doing? I mean, I'm trying to be a good parent and raise them up in the Lord. But if their salvation is dependent on whether or not I'm a good or a bad parent, they're doomed. At the, at the end of the day, I'm a freaking horrible parent. The only reason I'm a good parent is if you compare me to worse parents than me. You start comparing me to better parents than me, and then I'm, I'm trash. And so that's the only thing on whether someone's a good parent at the end of the day. I mean, think about your child's salvation depending upon how you raise them. Now, God does use those, 
those, the way you raise them, of course he does. Remember, he decrees first things and second things. So we don't just sit on our we, laurels. There it is again. We don't just do that, you know. Okay. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world. What is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, redemption, in order that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And that's what we do. When we get on the sovereignty of God kick, when we get on a depravity of man kick, and then when we start running into unconditional election kick, we're like, praise God. I am boasting in the Lord. Don't understand it all, but all I know is I'm in. And, and it ain't because of anything I did, and it's not because of anything that I've done. It's not because I'm bright or smart. It's not because I turned the light bulb in my own brain, and some reason some Joe Schmo sitting next to me is just a complete idiot and hasn't figured it out yet. It's not because of any of that. We're all complete idiots. None of us would have figured it out, except for God chose us before the foundations of the world, and then in real time sent his son to live a perfect life for us, to die a death that we should have died. And then in real life, the gospel goes out from an idiot like me, and God uses that by the power of his Holy Spirit to turn the light bulb on, to give people new hearts, to make them alive, to regenerate them, to rebirth them, and then they respond in repentance and faith. And then they, they boast in the Lord. I know there's still a lot of questions. I don't have time for all of that. And if you have a bunch of questions, just see Painborn. Leave me alone. No, just kidding. I, I can answer them. I can give you good answers for all your questions. How is he not the author of evil? I can help you there. What, what about double predestination? We can, go, we can talk about all that stuff. But today, we're just sitting here just basking in the glorious grace of God, knowing that he's sovereign, knowing that we are wretched sinners without him, knowing that none of us were seeking him, knowing that all of us deserved hell, and yet, for whatever reasons, and actually the best reason to give is just because he loved us, he chose us before the foundations of the world and saved us in real life. This isn't something to be a jerk about. It's insane. And I know there's this caricature of a bunch of jerk Calvinists. I, it's almost like a straw man. I know they're out there. I really haven't met many of them. I think we're all jerks, so... I mean, I've met a lot of jerk Arminians, I, I, you know, and there's uh, intellectual, I've, intellectualism, it makes you prideful. I've let, met a lot of real pride anti-intellectualists that are, are just as proud, if not more pride. I mean, I get made fun for how much I read all the time. It's like, you're, you're proud about your stupidity? That's just weird. I probably should edit that out, Jim, stupidity. It's just weird. Oh, you're chosen, so you're, oh, oh, so you're, you're, cho you're special. Yeah, because Christ chose me. But none of us are like, yeah, I've chosen because God like saw. See, okay, if you're, now I am going to defense mode. If you're coming from an understanding that God chose people because he looked down the corridors of time and saw that you would choose him, okay? If that's your view and then someone says, no, 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 God chose me before the foundations of the world, not based off of anything. They, they don't even hear that based off of not anything you did. Because they already have a worldview that they think it's something that you did do. 
And now they think you're boasting because it's nothing that you did do. It's just, it's weird. It's, it just becomes a circular argument and you really don't ever get anywhere with people. All right. Well, what is the application of all this? It should be this humility. Nothing we do. Let's not even do anything with this yet. Let's just agree to be humble. Let's agree as, as believers to not be jerks, whether we're Calvinists or not. Let's just agree to that. Let's agree to just be blown away by the grace of God. Let's agree to just be blown away by the fact that God will never stop loving us because he never began to love us. Let's agree to be humble because God's love for us is an everlasting love. He's loved us before we were ever formed in the womb. He loved us before there was a womb. He loved us before there was anything in the world. He loved us and he chose us. And it wasn't because we were geniuses. And it wasn't because we were holy. It wasn't because we were blameless. It wasn't we, because we're better than or, or morally more just, you know, got our, we're, 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 have never been to jail or we got our stuff together. It's not because of any of that. I'm good with my money. God chose me. No, it's not that. I have an IQ over 120. It's not because of that either. Ah, it's because I went to Bible study and just kept going and going. And, and, it, and it's not because of that either. It could be, I mean, God uses, of course, his word, but ultimately we're, we're believers because he loved us with an everlasting love. That should give us humility. And not just in thinking about salvation, it actually should spill over into every single thing we think about. It should spill over in every action. It's just like this humility of just knowing that the most important thing has been taken care of by God. And I can just chill out on everything else. All right. It should give us assurance. See, look, we come to church and we receive. And some people are nervous about that because it, the seeker-friendly movement and the church growth movement. And it's like, no, you come to church to receive. And we automatically start thinking like, what, coffee and donuts and a comfortable chair and heating and air and yada, yada, yada. It's like, no, we come to receive grace. The primary reason you come to church is not to be told all the areas you need to be serving in or could be serving in. Cool, we do need help in certain areas. The, the primary reason you come to church is not to find your gift and then use it. That's good. Find your gift and use it. We'll even help you there. The primary reason we come to church is ultimately not even to worship. It's not to do anything. Ultimately, it's to receive. And today, we just get to receive humility, some humility from God. Today, we get to receive some assurance. I look at this by Burkhoff, who is one of my favorite theologians. Election is the source of rich comfort for all believers. Their final salvation does not depend on their uncertain obedience, but has its guarantee in the unchangeable purpose of God. Such assurance. My salvation, past, present, future, does not depend upon my uncertain obedience uncertain obedience. What a phrase. Obedient today, not obedient tomorrow. Obedient right now, give me an hour, I'll probably blow it. It's not dependent on that. It's not dependent on, it's dependent upon God's decree. It's dependent upon God's everlasting love. It's dependent upon God's unconditional election before the time began. So if it's not based off anything I did do, then how could it be kept or how could I finally have it based off of stuff that I did do? No, it's all based on the sovereignty of God, the triune God. This also gives us rest. We, we get a rest in this. That's what we get to do. Thanksgiving right around the corner. Everybody's going to be, I, my wife said she hates cooking. Pray for her. I love it. I love that she cooks. Um, 
But this just gives us a good rest before the holidays, people coming in, people coming out, cooking, yada, yada, yada. This, this, the, the things that can just rob us of rest. It just gives us peace and rest, joy and gratitude. All, I mean, just all the good things. I guess I, humility, assurance, rest, joy, gratitude, you name it, all the good stuff. It gives us, though, then this desire to then do something and it's to worship God. It, it's, that's what it does. It moves us to just worship God and totally with this understanding that it has nothing to do with me. It's not, I'm worshiping you, God, for 99.9% .9 of my salvation. It's not any of that. Which, again, no one else ever, no one, I've never heard somebody say that, because that's like a straw man thing, too. But if you believe in any salvation that has any aspect of you doing absolutely anything for that salvation, then that's what you've done. That's why over and over and over again, Paul makes it clear so that no one can boast. No one can boast. No one can boast. And people will be like, why do you make such a big deal of that? Because Paul did. God doesn't want people boasting in their salvation. He wants people understanding. Now, on the front end, we hear the gospel. We hear repent and believe, and we do. It sure looks like I turned the light bulb on. I'm the one that believed, and I did all. Absolutely. But that's on the front end. On the back end, when you start reading, you start finding out that all that was because God, in time and before time, saved you. And someone could be sitting here today and say, well, then how do I know, Mr. Jeremiah, how, I could be, how do I know that I'm chosen? Believe. Believe. Believe in Jesus Christ. Believe the truth about yourself. And then believe the truth about Jesus Christ. And then you will know that you were chosen before the foundations of the world. You can come up, Elijah. I'm going to read this, okay? If you really want to dig deeper, you could go to the Second London Baptist Confession. It's free online. You can get these little ones that are like in modern translations, which you don't really need to, but I kind of like them. And they're like five bucks, and you can just stick them in your Bible. It's the most important thing that I have besides my Bible is the London Baptist Confession of 1689. And it has all these verse references, and so you get to just like not only read what they're saying, but, and I'm, I mean this, it's the most important thing I own besides my Bible, all right? And here's what it says. By the decree of God... For the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ, to the praise of his glorious grace. Others being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation to the praise of his glorious justice. Those of mankind that are predestined to life, God, before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable, which means not changing, purpose, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, has chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love without any other thing in the creature as a condition or cause moving him thereunto. As God has appointed the elect unto glory, so he has, by the eternal and most free purpose of his will, foreordained all the means thereunto. Wherefore, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, 
are effectually called unto faith in Christ. By his spirit working in due season are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ or effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. And look how it closes. This doctrine, the doctrine of the high mystery of predestination, is to be handled with special prudence and care that men attending to the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation be assured of their eternal election, so shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. A lot of words. But notice how it ends. This should, we should be careful. We should be humble. But this should just give us praise and admiration and love for God when we think about the fact that we have been chosen before the foundations of the world to be in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We love you, and we love you because you first loved us us. And we know that in this life, we experience that love for us when we hear the gospel. But Lord, you loved us with an everlasting love before we were ever even born. And it is today that we just are so thankful for that love. So thankful that you didn't look at us and put us on a scale and decide whether or not you were going to love us based off of who we were, or what we did, or what we didn't do, or who we weren't. But you love us without a care to any of that. And you sent your son for us. We certainly don't understand it all, but we are certain of your love for us. Help us, Lord, to respond with love for you. In Jesus' name, amen.